Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is part four of Cascaders podcasts about principles. And the session today is quite um, a, a, a thrilling one by my standards. It's about why it matters to know who is the actual decision maker at any given point of the CARE Act or indeed the Mental Capacity Act. So when I talk about the decision maker, I mean the person or the group of people who are actually making themselves responsible for saying to the member of the public, this is us done. So we're not quality assuring or helping people get their paperwork right en route to a decision. We are the decision makers or I am the decision maker and that is our decision. Last week, I talked about how councils tend to be floundering in a functions fog. They don't know the difference between duties and powers quite often. And this week, I'm going to be looking at a related problem that the officers themselves could be floundering in a functions fog in terms of who is the right person for the job. And the reason that that matters is that statutory powers and duties called comprehensively functions, well, those functions in Acts of Parliament are legally obliged to be discharged by the actual officer or the named individual or the organisation that's been given the job by the Act. Otherwise, it would be unlawful. So just to give you some very simple examples, obviously, the role of a BIA, a best interest assessor, cannot be discharged lawfully by someone who uh, just isn't one. Equally, the supervisory body for dolls, deprivation of liberty safeguards, has its own job to do, even though it isn't there to second guess the assessments. The law is that it can't pass a set of authorizations from the assessors, which on their very faces, the paperwork doesn't even deserve to count as the necessary assessments because it doesn't actually follow the statute. Another example is that that an AMPS job or a Section 12 doctor's job under the Mental Health Act cannot be done by just any old person. They have to have the qualifications. But the bottom line is that if Parliament has given the job, whatever it is, to the local authority, then that authority can only act through its officers. In other words, its employees. Of course, it is allowed to buy help in from the private sector. But up up until the CARE Act, it wasn't lawful for local authorities to give to outside organisations the actual decisions that have to be made by the council. So um, you couldn't give social work assessment out to an outside body. Outside bodies that wanted to help you and be paid to do it could do 99% of the fact-finding, but then the decision had to be made in-house through what's called ratification by an insider. Well, that changed under the CARE Act, um, and uh, the CARE Act made it plain that the council is allowed to meet needs, for instance, through making arrangements with the private or the voluntary sector to do the hands-on job. But that's not the same as getting its statutory decision-making duties done 
support it. And the CARE Act made it possible to get most of those statutory decision-making duties done through delegates. Only when the statutory function is allowed to be delegated, mind you, there are some things, at least four functions, that are not allowed to be delegated out. But for instance, social work companies or a local authority's NHS health partners could become lawful delegates and do the Care Act decision-making. The reason you have to be a bit careful if you're a council doing that and you have to make sure that your delegates know what they're doing is that the local authority remains liable in all cases for breach of statutory duty, for instance, or for human rights issues that one's delegates manage to cock up. So in any council, there should be a delegation scheme setting out who is responsible for which statutory functions. And I don't mean just like a job description, because that would be very broad and full of strategic responsibilities for senior managers. I mean a much more precise set of allocations of specific roles, such as duties under the CARE Act. And the usual top of the tree is the director of adult services, the man or the woman where the buck stops for all decision making under the CARE Act, particularly in high cost cases or in scenarios where the council has had advice from a, a, a king's council barrister, but needs to decide whether to settle a case and decisions whether to go along with something rather than set a precedent. So the director is only one person, and obviously they don't have time to do everything that has to be decided. So just as with any other company or other organization, these areas of responsibility then have to get parceled up and doled out to lower ranking officers, first of all in the senior management team, and then down through the workforce hierarchy. If we start from the bottom up, Frontline staff in the local authorities working in first contact roles will not often be social workers, but that doesn't matter as long as they're trained, competent, and ideally have access to people who have got social work qualifications and experience and values for supervision purposes and for helping decision making when anybody on the phone to somebody who's not known to social services is dubious about which way they should triage them. And then at the next level up, people doing formal assessments for anyone who's triggered the right to a CARE Act assessment, remember, by dint of simply appearing to the council to be someone who may be in need of care and support, well, that person will be responsible for all the fact gathering about people who are being referred in. Those frontline people may or may not be responsible for eligibility decisions, and they arise from the gathering in of all of the information. For instance, about a person's inability to achieve and the impact that their condition is giving them. Staff who are doing assessments more likely are making recommendations, subject to supervision from their team managers, 
or they may be the decision makers on eligibility, but for instance, in 80% of cases, because there may be scope in the delegation scheme for the team manager to pull those decisions in and up to the team manager if there is a concern that there's a point of principle at stake. I'll give you an example of what I mean. I've just seen a, a local government ombudsman report which upheld East Sussex's view that a person was not an eligible carer. The decision was based on the idea that she wasn't providing care regarded as necessary to the cared for person. And the evidence was that a reablement team who had just been with her for six weeks found the mother capable of meeting her own needs, giving themselves a big pat on the back for having secured the reablement goal. But the result of that was that the local authority said that the carer who had been eligible for five years as a carer was no longer eligible. And a lawyer like me would just immediately note that nobody seems to have made any decision about the less hands-on things that she was doing, but the practical and emotional input, which count as caring as well, and which could still mean that a person is eligible. So in that situation, I would say the local government ombudsman hasn't probed deeply enough in relation to who was supposed to be deciding the eligibility of carers. You can't just give that willy-nilly to reablement teams who are looking at somebody else altogether. In my experience, it's very rare indeed for frontline staff to be trusted to do anything more than make a recommendation to a panel when their suggested care plan costs, the content of a care plan, go over a certain financial amount per week. So that brings me to the interesting question of panels. Are they legal? How are they supposed to operate? Are they the decision makers? And I'm going to refer you to a paragraph in the care and support guidance, which refers to these panels and it calls them approval panels. And it sounds a warning note. It says due regard should be taken to these in both in terms of the timeliness and the bureaucracy of how quickly you finish care plans. In some cases, it acknowledges panels may be an appropriate governance mechanism to sign off large or unique personal budget allocations and plans. Can I please highlight that it says a governance mechanism? It doesn't say an appropriate way of discharging the statutory duty. Many people in local authorities think that there must be a stage in the CARE Act that is about authorization of the spend signing off the budget. But in fact, there is nothing special in the guidance that makes senior managers the only people who can decide on care plans. So the guidance says where used, the panels should be ooh, appropriately skilled and trained. But it doesn't say what that means. It says local authorities should refrain from creating or using panels that seek to amend 
planning decisions or micromanage the planning process or which are in place for purely financial reasons. And I've put my favorite turquoise on the word decisions and on the word purely. And I would say that those of you who are in the know will not be surprised to think that I think that this is a big hint in the guidance to councils to call their panels anything but a budget authorization panel. So they call them huddles or quality assurance mechanisms or meetings. They call them risk empowerment panels. Clearly, it's also a hint that you can't use them to amend planning decisions, but it doesn't say that you can't use them to amend planning recommendations. That is, if a council scheme of who is the decision maker has bothered to say, actually, it's the panel that is the decision maker and the role of the frontline staff is to make recommendations. The guidance goes on to say local authorities should consider how to delegate, that's the word I'm using, responsibility to their staff to ensure sign-off takes place at the most appropriate level. In cases where a panel is used and where an expert has been involved in the journey, the same person or another person with similar expertise should be part of the panel as well. And in my turquoise, I'm translating that to be a hint to senior management teams that there must be at least one mental capacity expert on that panel, because then if needs be, they could maybe justify disagreeing with the frontline member of staff who's made the best interests decision. It's going to be hard because that frontline person is going to be the one who's gone through all of the steps in person with the individual and their family. And therefore, it's going to require somebody with more articulacy or more management experience plus qualifications to override that the, the rationale for that person's thinking. So why does this actually matter at all? Well, the obvious reasons are that the decision maker, whoever it is, may need legal protection provided by um, a piece of legislation. I've just mentioned the MCA, but the Mental Health Act too provides people who have made certain decisions under the Mental Health Act with immunity from um, civil action by disgruntled, unwell people unless the High Court approves. And so clearly to get that protection, the person the right person has got to show that they applied the right approach, approach to any of the views that they reached and that they did the best interests consultation. They factored it all in and they weighed up the pros and cons properly. Secondly, whenever the decision maker is a body or a group of people, the infamous multidisciplinary team, the way that group operates to decide anything can matter. And a judge sometimes says, well, where's your written constitution so that I can see that you all knew what you were supposed to be doing? Thirdly, a decision maker is the person or the group who needs to explain dodgy things like the appearance of bias or the appearance of that group of people having predetermined the outcome 
and just pretended to be thinking about it because they maybe had a policy in place that had hardened up into a rule. And the only way you can explain that, if that's what it looks like, is by being able to identify a person with the right degree of authority. And then lastly, the decision maker tends to be the person whose reasons may be required, either by the statute or the regulations, or through a legal process. For instance, if a council's legal department has received a letter before action and it does a proper response, without which it is at risk as to costs, it needs to explain its justification in its reply to the solicitor. The real problem is that in a judicial review, if there are no reasons given for a decision, the judge is more likely to regard the decision as irrational, because irrational is another word for a decision for which there are no reasons. These are cases in which the judge has asked, who is, for the love of social care, actually responsible, and in which nobody was able to say. And one of the earliest ones and most famous was Hillingdon and Neary. And the italics are, judge, that they're the words of the judge. And the judge said, where a local authority wears a number of hats, it should be clear about who is responsible for its direction. In code, the judge said the left hand of Hillington doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And uh, the judge said, I did ask, I did keep on asking. The judge said the tale of service provision, however expert and specialised, should not wag the dog of welfare planning or assessment. This case was characterized, he said, either by an absence of decision making or by a disorganized situation where nobody was truly in charge. And it was not consequently possible for anybody to be um, pointed to. I asked Hillingdon witnesses to explain who was answerable for various actions because, the judge said, I know that a local authority should have a delegation scheme, but no one could say etc, etc, etc. But the favourite case on being careful as to who makes the decision is the Merton case. And Merton is the leading case on what you have to do when reassessing somebody and wanting to find that it is appropriate for them to be moved. The proposal here was to move a young man from somewhere where he'd been for 15 years in a facility that was really well-staffed. It had a specialist multidisciplinary team, and it ultimately had people in-house who could do X and who could do Makaton and all sorts of things. So when the judge was looking at the challenge to the decision to terminate this man's care plan with a view to making him go somewhere else, the judge said, where is the assessment and where is the reasoning for the assessment that this man no longer needs this very high level of um, expertise? And the court held that it was unreasonable and illegal 
because nobody from Merton would give any of the reasons that could possibly said be said to justify a professional social work decision that the features of the plan were no longer needed. And the judge used the absence of the clarity about the funding panel's personnel, what authority it had, absence of any information about its policies or processes as going to the unlawfulness and the unreasonableness of the decision. So this was not a court of protection decision about best interests. This is a pure administrative court decision about the illegality of Merton's decision making. And what it could be taken to mean by other councils listening is this. Commissioners, the senior people, are not allowed to constrain care planning judgments in advance. So the very typical words from a person who's coming to do a review to a client such as, we've been told to go forth and subtract, those are the kind of words that make a decision judicially reviewable. Staff have no business saying those things. And the fact that they are saying these things means that nobody is telling them why it shouldn't be said. But it also means that they genuinely think that they must bring home the savings. And that means that their discretion is being fettered. I have used the facts in Merton in a previous lecture in this series. But just to remind you, this person was someone um, who had serious needs. And reading between the lines, it looks as if Merton wanted to extract this man from the clutches of the very expensive providers. And therefore, they probably negotiated with them, but they couldn't get the fees down. And so what they did was, without doing any Care Act process, not even a review, let alone a reassessment, they liaised with their care home providers on their framework. And they said, here is our one-page profile. Will you do a pre-admission assessment to figure out whether we should be going forward with you or other organisations? Do you think you could meet this man's needs? So the council's short profile document was given and then the provider came back to the local authority without the client knowing anything about this and without the family knowing anything about this and basically patted itself on the back and said, yep, if that's what I'm taking on, I can do that job. So when the parents got to hear about it, they were appalled. They thought that their son had really been saved from Mental Health Act uh, sectioning by virtue of the very stable and slow progress the facility provider had been able to deliver. But they didn't just drop. They visited the other place and they came to the conclusion it wasn't fit for purpose. They accepted that the one they wanted, which was to stay on in the college's adult provision, would be more expensive. But they didn't think that that was a, a killer point because they couldn't see how the proposed one could even be suitable. But the local authority wouldn't give in and therefore there was a judicial review. So the poor social worker had the spotlight on her and she was required to explain how she had considered 
the pros and cons of how to meet the current view of his needs in one setting or another. And she did a pretty good job in relation to speech and language therapy, OT, physio, psychiatric input, etc. And it was clear that she had been the assessor who had thought about the evidence and that the thinking was hers. However, things went wrong when she got to the total communication environment feature of the package, which was the very specialist multidisciplinary senior management team. Because all she would say was that it has been decided that he doesn't need this any longer. And the judge implied from that, after giving it a good go, that it was her decision, that it had been decided in advance of her assessment, and that she had been told to apply it, whatever else came to mind. And uh, the judge was not impressed by that. And the judge asked the barrister acting for Merton how the needs assessment had ever been prompted. There had been a needs assessment, but all of the thinking seemed to have been done in advance. And first of all, the judge was told it was because the man was at the stage of transition. But secondly, later on, it was confessed that it had been assessed that he did not need on-site multidisciplinary access. And the judge said this very frankly, no evidence was placed before me to support these assertions. I was not informed when such views had been formed or by whom. And by a certain date, the judge could identify as a finding of fact that Merton had decided that the placement terminate. They planned to move him an alternative service provider had deemed itself fit and Merton agreed that that provider could meet those needs. The only thing that hadn't happened was sign-off by a panel and that panel was hiding in a deep, dark corner. They had not authorised funding for the new placement, but those steps one to four had all occurred before the completion of the CARE Act assessment itself. Now, if any of you know the sequence of the CARE Act, you know that care planning comes a long way after assessment. Even if it's all being done holistically, it is, it's not something that can happen before an assessment. The parents were offered the chance of a more in-depth assessment if they thought that their son should go for a short trial in the new home. And they said, no, that would be too disruptive. And nobody took again that. Nobody said that that was just them being stroppy. They suggested that there should be another visit from the new provider who could do a fuller assessment without the young man needing to go anywhere. But um, Merton said no to that because it was just standing on its position that an adequate assessment had already taken place. The judge said this, the system was that placements could not progress until they had been presented to the funding panel, which met once a week. And the panel comprised a manager, senior manager, member of brokerage and representative from OT. The role of the panel, he was told, she was told, was to scrutinise proposed placements to ensure not only that they're affordable, but that they meet the person's needs. 
Then the social worker prepared a lengthy report. This was an independent social worker, and she listed the needs and said what the parents' view was. And the judge wasn't unfair to Merton. The judge said, well, I can only give a little weight to that because you didn't have that at the time. That's been done since. But the judge says that if a Care Act assessment is silent about something that is known to be disputed and contended for by the parents, then the expert evidence that the claimant has scrabbled together to get is not irrelevant. I am going to look at it. And uh, the judge said the decision to terminate the placement can only be uh, a lawful one if it's been arrived at rationally. And in this case, it was arguable and very likely that it was made before the plans had been conclusively reassessed. And this is the important bit. No reasonable local authority would terminate the placement of someone with JF's complex needs without having conducted a lawful assessment of those needs and without having lawfully decided that suitable alternative accommodation was theoretically available that would enable them to meet his needs. The judge said the assessment was not lawful for the reasons given above. So therefore, the decision to terminate the contract cannot stand. If the needs haven't been lawfully assessed, the deemed suitability of any alternative accommodation cannot lawfully survive. So ultimately, the judge quashed the assessment and ordered the defendant to undertake a further assessment of needs. I think they were still hoping that they wouldn't have to. So the judge made it an order. The judge went on, too, to say certain aspects of the assessment were perfectly fine. The bit that the social worker had done about the SALT and the OT needs was adequately detailed. But in terms of the total communication environment and the continuous MDT access that this man had enjoyed for 15 years, there was a great big zilch in the assessment paperwork. It didn't say whether he had a need for a TCE. It didn't say whether the multidisciplinary team needs to be on site as opposed to just available off site. The silence prevents the reader from understanding whether the need for these specialist things was considered and rejected or simply not considered at all. The poor social worker's statement said that the local authority decided that this man did not need an on-site MDT or a TCE. So it's clear that it wasn't her view and she was just hiding behind the passive language that the local authority had decided about that. The judge said, I have not been provided with any evidence about how the funding panel operates. No written policy or procedure, nothing to help me tell the difference between social workers' decisions and decisions at a corporate level. And the judge proceeded to make some findings and then finished off by saying, this is an unlawful assessment. The outcome was 
that the local authority decided that this was not needed, and that is not good enough. So I've highlighted the important stuff in yellow. The process is not particularized, and the decision maker not identified. I know it had been decided that he didn't need an MDT, and the aspect of that provision was very expensive, but I'm not informed when this decision was taken, whether it was outside the main written assessment process or before or after it. I have been provided with no documentation to evidence or support such a decision. For the assessment to remain silent on both issues is, cough, cough, surprising, given the circumstances that I have summarised above. The social worker's statement implies that the decision was made separately from the completion of the assessment. And uh, he continues, which I will uh, not go into. So ultimately, it's clear that if your panel is the decision maker at a local authority level, then it is your panel that must give the reasons. And I take that from the old case of SAVA, which was decided long before the CARE Act. And I have explained in this slide why the judge said it is not good enough for the poor old social worker to have to translate what the panel says and then take it back. It must be the decision makers' reasons that are written up and provided to the individual. And the judge gave um, references to three old cases, one of which goes back to uh, 1998, as to why it isn't good enough to do this without the reasons. This is a hugely important area of decision making and the laws of procedural fairness are proportionately stricter. You can follow through uh, the chain under the CARE Act now between the decision maker and the duty to give reasons. It says that it's the local authority that must give a written record of a needs assessment. And it says that it's the local authority who must give the adult concerned a written record of the determination about eligibility and the reasons for it either way. But remember, the local authority is code for whatever the delegation scheme says about who is responsible for this. And if you are the decision maker, public law says it is your reasons. The duty turns on who the decision maker is. And for as to how clear the reasons must be, the law says this, they must be intelligible and they must be adequate. They must enable the reader to understand why the matter was decided as it was and what conclusions were reached. The last couple of slides are just about other situations where it's really important to know who the decision maker is. In the Mental Capacity Act, the act refers to the decision maker without saying who it is. It might be ordinary people if the state is not involved in paying for care at all. If it's a medical or a clinical decision, it will be that person who's doing the touching or the probing or the examining because it's that person who needs the defence under Section 5 of the Mental Capacity Act for doing something without the capacitated consent of the person who's being touched. 
when it's the council or the ICB, you're not touching people. But what makes you the decision maker is that you are generally speaking the funder. If a member of the family has welfare power of attorney or welfare deputyship, you're still the decision maker unless they use their power to refuse consent to what is being proposed, because that's what welfare power of attorney holders can do. Those authorities do not give those people the power to tell you how to make decisions or what to commission or pay out. Those decisions are Care Act duties or NHSCHC duties that do not require consent. Commissioning, though, what you know to be a Mental Capacity Act action, such as touching, restricting, restraining, or doing treatment to somebody, then that means that the council or the ICB must incorporate the Mental Capacity Act in its care planning. The provider who implements your plans can point to the care plan and the contract for all the main points on which the person lacking in capacity should be treated by uh, the staff. And in a situation when it's literally not a touching decision and it's not a care planning and paying decision, and it's not clear whose duty it is to make a decision. Well, the question of who is the decision maker, in my view, is best arrived at, best answered by asking yourselves, who's going to get it in the neck if we just stand by and dither? It will generally be a safeguarding lead because that officer in a local authority could and should be in a position to bring strong influence to bear on any other decision maker. So that finishes the material. And for the first week in four weeks, I have got some time to actually answer some questions. So I'm going to look at whether there are any in the chat. And uh, Joanne says she loves a bit of straight talking, uh, but there are no other questions in the chat. So may I ask you, please, uh, for people who are still on the um, on the uh, podcast, whether anybody would like to ask a question and unmute. You are in the position now. I've just done click the button to unmute and ask a question. Would anybody like to do that? Hi. Yeah. Hello. Who's that? Uh, my, my name's Judy, Judy Griffiths. Hello. Um, my, my question is about reviews and whether the same rules apply to um, all the decision making and assessments and the uh, legal requirements for for evidence, really. And uh, yes, so yes. So if, if you're saying to me, does everything that applies to assessment apply to review and revision? I couldn't say yes. Because, yeah. for instance, people can refuse an assessment, but you can't refuse a review or a revision because by that time you're a person who's in receipt of public money and you can't just keep it forever. Okay. Uh, so yeah. Th that would um, be so an example of a difference. Another difference is that whilst you get um, a, an advocate for an assessment process, you don't automatically get an advocate for a review. 
People are shocked at that because the guidance says you do. But you get an advocate as of right if you qualify when your care plan is being revised. The guidance makes it clear that you can do your own review and send it into the local authority to sign off or come to see you if they don't agree with it. And I think that if that was done more often, people wouldn't be so terrified of reviews always being associated with cuts. I think that that is part of the culture, and that's why people don't hustle for being reviewed more often. It's why people just sit there and take an inadequate budget for a direct payment and then wait till the end of the year to say to the financial people, oh, please don't take the money back. We haven't been able to use it. So generally speaking, the principles I've been talking about, about needing to know who the decision maker is, apply to the decision whether to have a review and the decision whether to revise the care plan and then how to revise the care plan, generally down, but quite possibly up. Does that help? Yeah. Um, it, it does to up to a point. Um, my daughter's in supported living, has a learning disability. Um, so she, she has 24-hour support by a care provider, but she had some additional activities that she went to. She's had two hip replacements, for example. So she's had personal training and this has been cut, these specific items, and although she needs somebody to access the personal training, um, we've been told that we will, they will only pay the amount for the care provider. Um, so they've in fact cut the personal training, which is, you know, there is evidence from community learning, disability, physio, and why, why this is necessary for her. Right. So, so it's, it's who... Yeah. Can I can I explore with you? Are you saying that after she had hip replacements, it was accepted mm. that her care package value needed to go up? Uh, yes, at that time. Yes. Okay. And so, yes. so six weeks you... physio doesn't do it for her because okay. of her learning disability. So was she told that she could have it for six weeks? No, no, no. OK, so there was no time limitation. No, that. no time limitation. Uh, She's so, had it for a number of years. Okay. And so are you saying that the cost of the actual activity was provided? Or are you saying that um, she went to the physical training and uh, she was escorted there? Or, or are you saying that the cost of the personal trainer was provided? The cost of the personal trainer. Okay. And did, because, she ha did she also have to pay to go to a gym or something or did the person? Um, she does have a gym her? membership, which, which is a, a separate item, but they also are paying for currently. Yes. Okay. So for um, an apparent, through an apparent change of circumstances, she was mm. provided with the cost of personal training. Yes. And then it was cut. Yes. So was it cut after a review and what I would call another go at care planning? Or were you just yes. informed that yeah. it was cut? No, no, she had a formal review. I yes. gave a lot of evidence about why she needed this to continue. And then um, that was just disagreed with. It was It was disagreed with. Okay. It went to a, a sort of multifunctional uh, panel. Uh, yes. Panel. Okay. And yeah. so <laughs> the, the, the thrust of what I have been saying is that mm -hmm. that panel should have given you reasons why they were disagreeing. With the evidence they're saying it's you... a health function they're okay. trying to pass it she's joint funded 
And health health are saying, no, they won't fund it. Okay. So the bottom line is that they're arguing between themselves yes. as to who is responsible. Not that it is not needed. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, yes. Okay. Are, is they, the... hope, they hope that she will be able to, they say it's a lifestyle choice. She can pay from her own money. Okay, but that's because health is refusing. To, that's because health is refusing to pay towards it. Yes, yes, yes that's right. Okay. It's just, uh, I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I don't think that they have adequately explained, in terms of public law, why something that was needed mm. is still needed, but mm. is not their responsibility. Yes, I agree. So. I don't know how long ago that was. Well, unfortunately, it is over three months. You know, okay. been through. Well, I say that, but I think the care plan was unlawful as well. But that's another issue. But because... but it isn't just another issue. I wanted to no. give you some encouragement okay. because here is a good yeah. thing. You clearly know that there's a three-month time limit in which yeah. you can raise these things by way of legal proceedings. But that doesn't yes. mean you can't complain about it. And also, no. this is a particularly important thing to bear in mind. When your problem... Is a, has arisen because of a local authority failing to do something or stopping yeah. doing something, it mm. is possible to say that it is an ongoing, continuing breach. Right. So that the three-month time limit goes out the window. Right. Oh, that's very helpful. Okay. I'm yeah. glad to make someone Sorry. happy. Anyway. So, yes, I, I should yeah. let you deal with other people's issues as well. Thank okay. you so much. Does anybody else have a question that they'd like to ask? You're going to have to unmute yourself and speak because there's too many on the too many people on the screen for me to see everybody. Yes, I have one, but it's on direct payments. Okay, well, give it a go, Mary. Okay. Um, this parent um, is receiving direct payment, but because the money is not enough, I think I've said that before. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not enough. Yeah, you have said it. Parents have yeah. underspent, yeah. right? And this yeah. underspend she spent on paying for carers. No, she has a built up because she has to build up money by covering in order to pay the person. Can yes. the local authority take over the money? The local, the local authority can take the money, but it's disingenuous for them because they're effectively saying, Ooh, there is unexpected money here, which apparently hasn't been needed. Okay. And then that's when in a proper person-centered way, there'd be a discussion about why it hadn't been spent. And the issue is that probably the family members have stepped up. And because the money was insufficient uh, in order to attract somebody to do the job for money, the family who had been willing to do X ended up doing three times as much as X. Exactly. And yeah. that should have been raised in a request for a review. But because maybe the family didn't even know that they could do that well, because, they, because they were scared. For whatever reason, it wasn't raised at the time. But just taking back the money in a in a in a cut and grab and runway is definitely it is disingenuous, and I would say it is unethical. Yeah, okay, thank you very much. All so right. you can appeal it and then yeah. go to the postman. Yeah. 
I'm going to finish now because uh, two o'clock is my target for coming off of these things. But I'm hoping and I'm gathering that they are doing a lot of good. So please spread the word far and wide. And I'm enjoying doing them, which is uh, important too, because I've got to keep going. So thank you very much. And nice to see some old faces on the screen, by the way, from previous lives. You'll know who you are. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.